Well, good morning once again. Uh, yeah, two of you. Good morning. The rest of you are having a bad morning. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, let me just also express uh, my uh, gratitude to you all. It's been an absolute pleasure to spend this week with you here. Our first time at Mount Hermon, the kids have had a blast. We've loved it. You know, my dad ran camps in the mountains of the Canary Islands, which are pretty high for about 35 years uh, in tents. And so I grew up in camps and I know we had nothing like these facilities at all. I mean, we had trees, that's it. But I know that this is as close to heavenly as it possibly could get for him. So we've got lots of pictures and we'll certainly be telling him about it. Uh, It's been great, it's been great to share the pulpit with my colleagues, Mark, Mark, Barry, it's just been an honor and uh, just a real privilege, it's been very special. And to meet you and to spend a few uh, days with you and to talk with you around the table and as we walk around the, the campus here, it's just been an absolute delight. So hopefully we'll be back at some point, the Murphys. So, Okay, open your Bibles please to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, we're going to look at uh, a little incident there and Uh, Just to refresh your memory on the Gospel of Mark, I'm making no statement concerning your memory, just my own, that things are becoming a little uh, more difficult to remember for me these days. It's kind of a skill I'm developing, forgetting things. Uh, And it reminds me of three old pals that were sitting talking about that very issue. And the first guy said to the other guys, you know, man, sometimes I'm standing in front of the fridge with a jar of mayonnaise in hand, and I forget whether I was putting it in or taking it out to make the sandwich. (laughs) And the other guy says, yeah, I'm with you there. I, I, I agree. Sometimes I find myself on the staircase of my home, and I can't remember, am I going up or am I coming down? And then the last guy, he said, well, I'm glad I'm not losing my memory yet. You know, fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Did I hear a knock on the door? Hey, I'll go and get that. <laughs> so that might be you. It's certainly increasingly and fast becoming me. But just a refresher on the Gospel of Mark very quickly before we jump into chapter 14. It's written to believers like you and I. It's written to followers of Jesus Christ, probably in Rome, and so probably Gentiles. And and. The heat, again, is being turned up a little bit in Rome, and so Mark writes to them to help them, at a very basic level, understand two things. Number one, who Jesus is. The Jesus that you have believed in. Let me remind you of of who he is, his person. Let me help you re-experience, again, his identity. And number two, Let me talk to you about what it means to follow after Jesus, his way. The word way, the word journeying is a dominant theme in the gospel of Mark. And Mark wants Christians like you and I to remember that if we're walking with Jesus on his way, we walk his way. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him his way. Uh, one of the key sub-themes that's very standout in Mark itself, it's in the other Gospels, but it's, it's dominant in Mark, is that the disciples are always distracted. And the disciples seem to not be paying attention. 
and they seem to trip over the same stone over and over and over again. And, and Mark, who we believe is writing a gospel through the lens of Peter's experience, it wouldn't be nice to have a gospel of Peter, wouldn't it? He was a real intimate follower of Jesus Christ. We believe Mark's as close as, as we get to that because Mark ministered with Peter. Uh, and, and, and Peter tripped over the same stone repeatedly. So the disciples don't pay attention that often. And I get a little bit of encouragement from that because I empathize with that. I trip over the same stones over and over again as I walk with Jesus. So I get a lot of encouragement out of their uh, being cast as a little bit of a failure. That's me. So who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him his way as disciples who mess up from time to time and, and the gospel rushes to Jesus last week. Uh, the first 10 chapters really are Mark's presentation of several years of Jesus' ministry. In fact, Mark 1 begins with an adult Jesus, right? You don't have a baby Jesus. You don't have a manger you don't have, you know, angels uh, announcing his arrival. You don't have Magi. You have an adult Jesus who comes to be baptized. Uh, and, and the book doesn't slow down until you get to chapter 11. Jesus last week and the triumphal entry. I took you to chapter 12 a few days ago uh, in my, one of my choices for, for this session uh, where we have a context of of. of Conflict, right? They're pecking at Jesus. They're trying to sort him out and peck him down the ladder. And, and here today, I want to take you to chapter 14, another beautiful little story that's packed into that tense context. You've got to remember, Jesus, Jesus is radical. Jesus isn't just walking about the villages of, of ancient Israel smiling at people and healing people. He, he's turning tables. He's challenging the status quo. He, he, he pecks and he questions life as it is because life as it is has no room for God. And that's not acceptable to God. And so we get to, to this beautiful incident that I want to walk you through today. And, and it really asks and answers the question, what do I do with Jesus? What do I do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? As a follower of Jesus, primarily I'm speaking to those who are on the way with Jesus, as Mark is. What do you do with Jesus? There's a whole bunch of things that you as a Christian can do with Jesus. The famous uh, scholar, writer, C.S. Lewis. We've heard C.S. Lewis mentioned several times uh, in our week. But nobody has told you that C.S. Lewis was from Northern Ireland. <laughs> and I make it my mission to make sure Americans know that C.S. Lewis was a Belfast man. So that great, we've, listen, we produced two things, C.S. Lewis and the Titanic. That, that one didn't go down too well, so we gotta cling to him. So I, I never mention him without saying, Belfast man, Northern Irish guy, C.S. Lewis. He, he simplified the options for society. In one of his writings, he says that you either see Jesus as a liar, who's deceiving us all. You see him as a lunatic who's self-deceived or you see him as Lord, that he's divine. And, and whatever option you go with, you live in light of that. Liar, 
lunatic Lord. I, I believe that, that Mark, in this little incident, presents us a catalog of options also. Different opinions that broad society, including followers of Jesus, have on Jesus. And my goal is for you to self-diagnose yourself this morning. Which one are you most like? I, I'm pretty sure none of you are on the fringes. And the fringes are options. But, but there's a little bit of room in the middle there, particularly two options, that I want you to consider. Which one am I most like? What do I do with Jesus? What do I do with Jesus? Okay, so I'm going to walk you through the story, and then we're going to extract a, a little point and, and get a take-home statement as well. So that's the plan. But let's jump right into the story. Mark 14 uh, verses 1 and 2. And if you like, as I said a few nights ago, if you like to write on the margins of your Bible, I do. It's getting me into trouble with myself because I'm struggling to read my own writing around the Bible now. But I love it, just years of notes. But if you like to do that, beside one, verses 1 and 2, write danger. Danger. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes, remember that's the religious elite that rule Israeli life primarily from Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem, they were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar, lest there be a riot uh, from the people. So we're introduced in the first two verses to a tense situation. That's why I say danger. This is dangerous uh, times here. And the story begins with, with a sneaky, crafty little murder plot. That's tense. And it's, it's secretive. It's stealth-like because these religious leaders, they're not, they're not, as we say where I come from, they're not duds. They, they're clever people. They know that Jesus is pretty popular here. And at the minute, if we do anything to him, there might be a bit of a riot. And it's, it's, it's Passover season, so the city is essentially quite combustible. It would be like, you know, striking a match on a, on a gas station forecourt. That's pretty dangerous stuff. Uh, we're waiting for the right opportunity to get rid of him. And, and it hasn't arrived just yet. So tense would this time be really every year. Um, uh, we know from other writings that the Roman governor would leave his beautiful little villa beside the Mediterranean Sea and make his way up to Jerusalem at this time of the year just to make sure that the heavy hand of Rome would respond to any uprising. And so the Roman governor, of course Pontius Pilate, from later on in the Gospels, we know is there. The city swells with people. We believe it triples in size. Probably around 200,000 people packed into this tiny little city, really. And I, I like to think of it really like combination between a state fair and a Bible conference. Right. I don't know where you're from. I just know the Texas State Fair in Dallas. It's packed, and it's noisy, and it's muggy. And, and yet added to that, given this event, it's pious. State fair is not necessarily pious, but the Passover would have been a packed, muggy, noisy, pious time of the year. Uh, it's been 
around 1,500 years that the Jews have been celebrating the Passover every year. And remember, the Passover is that celebration, that key festival, really, in, in the Israeli calendar that remembers God's great deliverance, that God delivered us from Egyptian rule. And he did so as we expressed our confidence in him by the slaying of a little lamb and the pouring of its blood on the doorposts of our home as we were ready to follow after him. His judgment passed over us because of the substitutionary death of this little lamb that, that expressed our faith and our confidence in him. So this is a massive religious season. And God did deliver them. And God may do it again. Not from Egyptian rule, but now from Roman rule. And so you can understand that nationalistic fervor is high at this time of the year. Uh, and any little disturbance could whip the crowd up into a frenzy that would make Rome's heavy hand come in, and that's not good for the religious elite. They want to keep the peace. They've got it pretty good. The status quo has really been something that they've benefited of. And, and Jesus is dynamite. Jesus is dangerous. Jesus is an absolute nuisance to them. So the best thing is, is if we get rid of him. But we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. So danger looms. Uh, and essentially it's because of this, that Jesus disrupts life. That's, that's the danger. That's the first option on the catalog of options that Mark wants you to see. That society and some in society look to Jesus and they say, Jesus is disruptive to my life. Jesus is disruptive to society's life with this teaching that's restrictive and intolerant. We're, we're better without Jesus. Now, it doesn't take you to live, you know, out in the woods to know that that's where society's at in some sense today, that Jesus is disruptive. Let's look at the next option, verse 3. And again, if you like to write in the margin of your Bible, write devotion. We've got danger, now we've got devotion. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask or jar of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. Lots of beautiful literary irony going on there. We've talked about some of the beautiful literary irony in the book of Jonah that just draws you into the story. And you've got that going on here. You've got uh, the temple elite plotting to kill Jesus in Jerusalem as Jesus parties at the home of a temple outcast in the outskirts of Jerusalem. You've got a plot to murder and you've got a party with Jesus. That's a contrast that's going on there. The plot to murder is from the religious elite. The party is in the house of a leper, a social outcast. The plot to murder by the religious elite is in Jerusalem. The party in the home of a former leper is in the outskirts of Jerusalem, a little town called Bethany. You're supposed to see the contrast. That, that verses 1 and 2 type of people are very different than verse 3 type of people. It's beautiful. 
This lady comes into the evening's events, and she's not named. She's unnamed. Mark knows her name. Again, it's, it's likely that it's, Peter was probably there. It had to be there. Now, we know that aside from John's version of this, that this lady is Mary. Remember Mary and Martha, the sisters, the sisters of Lazarus, who are as close as you can get to friends of Jesus? This is Mary. But Mark doesn't want you to know her name because Mark's trying to focus on something that she does. And, and he, he doesn't want you to be derailed by who this person is. And, and so it's an unnamed woman, and she under, interrupts the order of events that evening by pouring perfume all over his head. Just wonderful, nice, smelly stuff. There you go, Jesus, right on your head. Now, we don't know anything that happened other than that. Mark doesn't tell us whether they were eating pizza or good old fish and chips. Don't know. We don't know what music was playing in the background. My guess is it was some sort of proto version of U2. I don't know. We know nothing. All we know is that she pours all this perfume on his head, and that's odd. That's strange. Certainly for her to do it at this point in the evening, it's kind of rude. I don't know about you, but if I was out for a meal with my wife and some lady poured perfume all over my head, I'd be in trouble, and rightly so. Like, where do you know her? I, I, I don't know her. I don't know what's going on here. This is strange. Mark doesn't answer all the questions that I have of Mark concerning what's going on here because Mark wants you just to see one thing, which is the worth of what this woman does through this act, the value of it. Look, it's, it's I mean, it's repeated. It's an alabaster jar. Right, you have no idea, I have no idea what that is, but we know from research that an alabaster jar is like the Lamborghinis of perfumes. Like that's the top stuff, that's the expensive stuff. And it's not just any ointment and any nard, it's pure nard, pure ointment. This is not some cheap replica that you pick up at the local store. This is expensive stuff, and just in case you missed that, he tells you, very costly. Very costly. This is an expensive act. This is, uh, we know from, well, what follows next and from just what we know of that world, that this is probably around a year's worth of an average salary, the cost of that little flask. So think of what you earn in a year. Just put that number in, in your mind. And then go down to the local expensive store and write a check for that amount on perfume and then go and pour it on someone's head. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is extravagant. This is an extravagant gift that she uh, pours out on Jesus, of course, out of devotion to him. But you see, from her perspective, this isn't costly. This is gratitude. She's not worried about the cost of this. This is Jesus, and he's here. He's available. And why wouldn't I do this for him? So verse 3 is all about devotion. Verses 1 and 2, option number 1, Jesus is disruptive to life. 
Verse 3, option number 2, Jesus deserves my all. Some in society believe that Jesus disrupts life. Some believe that Jesus deserves my all. All of me. Well, look what happens next, verses 4 and 5. Again, right on the side of your Bible, disapproval. Disapproval. We've had danger, we've had devotion, and now we have disapproval. And yes, they're all Ds, and I worked very hard to make sure I found those Ds. I mean, I've squeezed the, the D section in the dictionary as much as I possibly could to help you. Disapproval, verses 4 and 5. There were some, again, from other accounts, we know that those some are the disciples. The close followers of Jesus. They said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. There's the cost again. And given to the poor. There's a righteous cause that it could have been put toward. And they scolded her. Some of these followers at the party, of course, are flat out indignant. The disciples haven't been paying attention to Jesus up until this point, really, in some of the key issues he's been teaching, but they don't miss this one. They notice this act, and they don't approve. This one interests them. You've met James, right? I've introduced you to James, and you've seen him knocking about here. Uh, he, he, he feeds me all my illustrations these days. I don't know what I'm going to do whenever he grows up. <laughs> I'm going to struggle. But James uh, uh, lately has a game that he's developed, his favorite game, and it's very appropriately called Let's Fight. That's, that's what he calls it. He comes up and he goes, Let's Fight. And you can understand what it, what, it, what it involves. Now, he's also into dinosaurs. He loves dinosaurs. Now, he understands that dinosaurs are either uh, meat eaters or leaf eaters. That's all he knows. You're either a meat eater or you're a leaf eater. And, of course, he also understands that the apex dinosaur, in his little understanding, is the T-Rex. So it's funny, a side note, he doesn't know, he calls McDonald's McDinosaurs. He believes it's McDinosaurs. It's very cute. And so he comes at me and he says, let's fight. And then he pauses and he lays out the rules. He's going to be the T-Rex. And he'll say, what do you want to be? A chicken? Like he has proposals. <laughs> he proposes what I'm going to be. So... Uh, so I, I mean, I love it. He attacks me and I'm this helpless chicken that's getting eaten up. And he understands that ha that has to be established because that determines who wins. The actual conflict doesn't. Who's the T-Rex determines who, who wins. And, and so I, a little while ago, I, I thought I'd have a little bit of fun with him. And when he asked me, who do you want to be? I said, I'll be the T-Rex. Of course, that threw him. I was like, ah. Uh. Uh, you could see it playing out. If, he, if he's the T-Rex and I'm not the T-Rex, then he wins. I don't win. That's not going to be good. So he says, okay, 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 but I'll be the daddy T-Rex. <laughs> I thought, isn't that genius? So he's the daddy T-Rex. I'm just a T-Rex. Now, that, that's not my story. I'm getting to my story. So we, we were having dinner one night. The other kids were out playing in the yard. Uh, James was quite literally 
in a bowl of ice cream. And I went to sit down opposite my wife, and she put a plate of food before me, and it was predominantly filled with spinach leaves. <laughs> and so she saw, she saw my face, and she said, and she was right, it's healthy. <laughs> and I responded, and I was right, it's yucky. <laughs> and I remember, I don't think James is paying attention at this point. He, he lifts his head just slightly, and it's, it's nearly to stop himself from drowning in the ice cream. And I didn't think he was paying attention or noticing anything, and he says, Mommy, Daddy and I are meat eaters, not leaf eaters. <laughs> he got it. I loved it. I thought he wasn't paying attention, but you see, leaves interested him. This is dinosaur categories stage. And, and that's precisely what's going on here. These guys are not paying close attention to anything Jesus is really telling them until it begins to step on their toes because they've got plans for Jesus and they could have used what she just wasted. So they scold her. The language there is they, they essentially snorted at her. Like, like, you know, it takes a lot of anger to make your nose flare up. Your nostrils, right? I mean, that's a lot of anger. That's a lot of disapproval going on here. This is an absolute waste from their perspective. I can, uh, I can see Peter, let's pick on him, uh, looking at this woman and thinking, have you any idea what it costs to set up the kingdom of God on earth, woman? You have no idea. We have Messiah t-shirts to pick up on our way down to, to Jerusalem. We could have paid for it with that. They just disapprove. They do not like, and of course, they sugarcoat it with this kind of, oh, but the poor. This could have gone to help the poor uh, with the voice of prudence and, and good stewardship. But bottom line is, that's a facade. For some followers of Jesus, there are limits on what you give to Jesus. There are limits on what you give to Jesus. Some believe Jesus is disruptive to life. This lady believes, no, 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 Jesus deserves my all. This group represent those followers of Jesus who say, ah, hang on a second, Jesus deserves some. But let's not go overboard. There are limits. There are boundaries. Jesus comes to her defense. There's your fourth day. Verses 6 to 9. Jesus steps in. Verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. Underline beautiful there. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, if you really want, whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you'll not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her, including Mount Hermon, 16th of August, 2019. We're talking about this lady. What they call a waste, Jesus Christ deems 
worship. Life legacy type worship. Example for history's sake of what it looks like to be a Jesus endorsed follower of Jesus, his way. And Jesus, of course, is all for helping the poor. I mean, read the rest of the Gospels. He clearly is for helping the poor. That, that was some fake righteousness rationale that they were trying to throw because they were just upset at the way she spends her money on Jesus. What Jesus is saying uh, as he interprets what this woman has done is this, this woman gets me. She understands, number one, who I am, and number two, what it means to follow after me. Themes of Mark. She understands what, what the disciples up until this point in the gospel of Mark have failed to see three times because they're not paying attention. Three times, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Jesus has told the disciples, we're heading to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be tortured and, and die, but I'm going to rise. Chapter 8, the response uh, is something like, oh, let's not talk about death. That's not part of our plans for you, Jesus. We have other plans. In chapter 9, it's, 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 another, it's a form of immaturity. Uh, they essentially say, you know, Jesus, those people down there are doing things that are really wonderful in your name, but they're not part of ours. So tell them to stop. That church down the road's competing with us. Tell them off. In chapter, nine, in chapter 10, it's really immature. Two brothers come with mummy, and they basically say, yeah, yeah, Jesus, that's wonderful stuff. But here, can we be the top two guys in your kingdom? Self-centered to the core. These are followers of Jesus who have plans for Jesus. Jesus has to align himself to their plans for Jesus. So the leaders plot to remove him at Passover, and, and the disciples are all put out by the waste that is spent on Jesus at Passover, but not this woman. She, she understands God's plans, Jesus' plans at Passover. She gets Passover. For 1,500 years, they've been celebrating God's great deliverance. This woman understands that this Passover is different. That the Lamb of God himself has stepped onto planet Earth. And that he's repeatedly told us that he's heading to Jerusalem to undo the work of that vandal sin on planet Earth. So she pours out her precious perfume on his head because she understands that he's about to pour out his precious blood on a door frame, on a, on a wooden cross. Not to rescue any individual from Egyptian rule or Roman rule, but from the rule of sin. What do you do when you get that? You give them your all. That's why Jesus says, back off. See in verse 8, when, when my translation, the ESV here says, she has done what she could. That phrase literally means she gave all she had. She gave all she had. That's important because Mark's doing something with another story, which I'll tell you about in a second. Here we have an anonymous woman who gave all she 
had because she gets the gospel. She doesn't forget that. So Jesus defends her. Option number one, Jesus is disruptive to life. Option number two, Jesus deserves my all. Option number three, don't take it too seriously. Jesus deserves some. Option number four, Jesus endorsed repetition of option number two. No, no, no. Jesus deserves all. Followers of Jesus who get Jesus respond by giving him their all. Verses 10 and 11, our last D, defection. The story ends with a return uh, to the religious leaders. Uh, they get the opportunity that they've been looking for. And they get the opportunity that they've been looking for from an insider, from one apparent close follower. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. See, Judas has been paying attention. It's a bit of the irony that's going on. Judas is perhaps the brightest bulb in the pack there. He's the CFO. This guy gets what's going on. He's a little bit more visionary than the rest of them. He knows that this isn't going the way we want things to go, and so I better get an exit plan going on here. And we know from other accounts that, that he's a bit of a thief, and he's in charge of the sort of group's public purse, so he's been skimming a little bit off the top there. But this guy is disillusioned with Jesus. He's disillusioned with Jesus. Jesus is a disappointment to him, and now he has an opportunity for a quick buck, and he's going to take it. He's going to get out. Judas, in contrast to the woman, is named for history's sake. He's singled out, and he stands in a direct contrast to her. She is a follower who gives up money and stuff for Jesus. He is a follower who gives up Jesus for money. Don't miss the irony. She's a, a, a wonderful example of a Jesus-endorsed devoted follower. He's a wonderful example of a defector. One who's close, but really just off, like we talked about a few days ago. Essentially, Judas represents those who have sort of dabbled with the Jesus, but have opted to get out and he essentially represents that Jesus disappoints or disillusions life. And that's an option that's out there. And you may have loved ones who have quit. Jesus just doesn't live up to the plans that I had for him, so I am out. Or you might still be following after Jesus, but you're actually functionally out. You're not involved in, in, in the Great Commission in any personal way. You're just going to wait until you get to heaven. You're disappointed, disillusioned with him. So that's the story. That's packed into those 11 verses. It's, it's beautiful. But what's the point? Well, the point is to present you with a range of options and to have yourself diagnose where you're at. And hopefully you're not at the fringes. Hopefully you're either the one who believes that Jesus deserves some 
and that you're not happy with self, that self-diagnosis, and that you're going to become a person who represents uh, an expression today of that lady, that Jesus deserves my all. But if I can give you it in one, I believe that what this story is telling us is that extravagant love, because this is an extravagant expression of love, extravagant love for Jesus gives all you have to Jesus. That's what this story, in the context of a lot of conflict, is telling us. That those who really are devoted to Jesus express their devotion to Jesus with extravagant love. That is costly love. They give Jesus their all. All you have to give. Everything that you could possibly give. Years ago, I heard the story of a Thanksgiving hotline that was set up by the Butterball Company who, who produced frozen turkeys for Thanksgiving. And they set up a hotline so that those who needed a little bit of advice as to how to cook their frozen turkey could, could phone up and get some expert advice. And so this lady phoned up and she spoke to the, to the expert and, and she basically explained to him that her turkey had been in the freezer for a long time and she needed advice on how to cook it. And he said, well, how long has it been in there? And she said, 23 years. <laughs> 23 years. Of course, the guy, the expert's going, well, I've never had that one before. But here's what I think. If, if it has been kept frozen for 23 years, it probably is okay. But there's going to be no taste and therefore, it's probably going to be not worth eating. And so this lady said, you know what? That's what I was thinking. I agree with that. Here's what I'll do. We'll just give it to the church. <laughs> we'll just give it to the church. Now, that's a funny little story, and it teaches a profound little truth that I don't like because I see it in myself, and it's this, that my default position is to give my leftovers to Jesus. That's my default position. And, uh, and the Lord's wrestling with me on that, and, and I don't like it. I don't give him my first fruits, but, but this story won't let me get away with that. That's a, ah, uh, there are limits to what I give to Jesus. This story is about extravagant love for Jesus Christ. It gives all you have. You don't give him your leftovers. Remember, I told you that the, the wording of the phrase is extremely important because, you know, in narrative the way that you connect stories and scenes and themes is through the words that are used. That's how themes are stitched together. And so this, has already, this story has already happened in a different setting before. There's already been an unnamed individual at the climax of the conflict chapter, chapter 12, an unnamed individual who is also a woman who's also explicitly singled out by Jesus as a prototype of what it means to be a God follower. And she was also introduced by truly I say to you, and she also gave all she had. Same phrase. Mark chapter 12. The little widow who gave the two little coins into the offering plate, believing that nobody on the planet cared or observed her, was being watched by God himself and being used as an example to this day of what it means to be a loyal follower of Jesus Christ, a devoted follower of God. Her gift in chapter 12 uh, was deemed very little. 
This woman's gift in chapter 14 was deemed very wasteful. You're supposed to connect the dots. Extravagant love for Jesus gives all you have to Jesus. So what's the call of this story particularly for you? I can't make it any simpler than this. What do I do with Jesus? You give all you can to Jesus. You move from option three to option one. Option two, sorry, got that wrong. Option two, don't go to one. Don't go to one. You go from option three to option two or option four, it's the same option. You give all you can to Jesus. That's what Jesus endorsed followers do. Don't ever forget that. In the catalog of options, sit in verse three. Sit in verse three. Underline verse three. Highlight verse three. Memorize verse three. Verse three is Jesus' words to you. Become like her. She gets me. And she gets what I've done for her. And she lives in light of that. Little scenes like that sift my heart. And God graciously allows that to occur from time to time. I told you a few days ago that we just came back from Northern Ireland a few weeks ago. And we were up in that north coast, remember? And it's beautiful. And there's miles and miles and miles of beautiful beaches with 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 sand dunes that go down to the water that have lots of long grass, just, just beautiful. And so we were up there, my sister and her husband were there as well with their three kids, and we all went into the sand dunes for a picnic. And the thing about these sand dunes with all the grass is that you very quickly get disorientated, right? As soon as you go in and you take a right, then you go, oh my goodness, this looks like where I was. It's, it's nearly like a natural maze, right, a labyrinth. And so we were having a good laugh. We were sitting uh, just in, in this little dip uh, away from the wind and had our picnic. And then the kids all said, right, we're away off to explore. And they've done this before, so they all headed off to explore while the four adults sat and chatted. But 20 minutes later, they came back, and one of the adults said to one of the elder kids, where's James? <laughs> Yeah, you know where I'm going. The response came back, James was never with us. So for the last 20 minutes, we thought James was with them. And so he's been gone for at least 20 minutes. And listen, again, we're not sloppy parents. <laughs> and, and my sister and her husband, I mean, they're like specialist doctors. They're clever people. This, this happens. And so immediately we all bounced and spread to the four corners of the world, really, to look for him. And for 10 minutes, that was the worst 10 minutes of my life, everything runs through your head. Your heart sifted. And you know what comes to the very top? What you value most in life. And my prayer is, Lord, just give me that boy back. Just another hug. So I'm shouting, James, James, and I turn a corner. And he had obviously heard me before I saw him, because I turned, and there he was with his little uh, sand shovel, holding it, walking towards me, with a little kind of dried tear in his eye. And we've all tried to figure out, you know, what was he doing for those 30 minutes, right? Like, what were you doing? But you can't tell him, because then you're influencing him, and you're not getting really back what happened. You're just getting your own words back at you. So uh, 
apparently he just walked on to find the kids and kept going. And we had the Coast Guards looking for him and all. I mean, this was, this was a big production. And he said, and was, what did you do? I just sat down and I played with my little shovel in the sand. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because God graciously gives you moments in life, like camps, to help you recalibrate your heart. To sift what, what muddies the water as to what's important in life. Gets you away from all the distractions and helps you at least come close to knowing what the options are. And that's what this passage does to you this morning. Self-diagnose. What type of a follower of Jesus am I? So give all you can to Jesus. Here's the thing. I have no idea what your alabaster jar is. I have no idea. I I know you're weak. I have no idea. I do know that it does include money and stuff, certainly in the West. That cannot be ignored. That what you have in your bank account or whatever resources you have, I got you to hear this. You got to hear this. It's not yours. It's not yours. It's Jesus. He owns it. And it's not going to count for you if he only gets it when it doesn't cost you anything because you're standing in his presence. He wants you to be a good steward of it while you have the opportunity to make that stewardship count. But it's not just money. I mean, an alabaster jar could be anything at your disposal that can be poured over Jesus' head as an expression of gratitude and devotion. It could be your time. It could be volunteering somewhere. That takes, that's costly. Showing up every week to, to, to help, I don't know, in some ministry in your church that perhaps you never get much thank you for, that, that's, that's costly. So there's, there's lots of wonderful opportunities for you to think about what your alabaster jar is. Jesus is worth more than your annual week at a camp. Uh, Jesus is worth more than a few songs once a week at church Jesus is certainly worth a lot more than your leftovers. This week, accidentally, uh, we've kind of providentially uh, tripped over putting what we're saying into your day-to-day activities, right? Remember Dr. Jones told you to, uh, well, told you when you shower, it's like, you're thanking God, right, for the cleansing that you have of sin. And, and then I took you to brushing your teeth for two minutes and, and considering making a statement to God every time you brush your teeth that you're only going to serve him and you're completely going to serve him. And so last night I was trying to figure out how can I get this into their day-to-day routine and I find it. Because I know you get up and you at some point presumably shower. I mean, you look lovely. And that you brush your teeth and you close your, clothe yourself, but at some point, you also reach out for some smelly stuff because you all smell lovely. And I don't know if it's, you know, perfume or a deodorant, whatever it is. Next time you do that, think about what you're going to give to Jesus today. What's my alabaster jar today, Lord? 
I've just brushed my teeth and told you that it's only going to be you I'm going to serve, and I'm going to serve you completely. And I just had a shower in which I expressed my gratitude to you for the cleansing that you've provided for me. So remember, no more forgetting. Tomorrow morning, as you reach for that deodorant can or perfume bottle, what can I give to you today, Jesus? I want you to see, not just hear, that I am a devoted follower, like this little unnamed woman 2,000 years ago was. Let me pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to gather around your word. And while at times it hurts, it's, it's, it's a good hurt that, that you have good plans for us and, and that your will is, is for our benefit and your word helps us see that. I thank you for this camp. I thank you for these people. I thank you for your word. And I pray in the name of Jesus that it will bear much fruit in every single person's life. Amen.